Chapter 12. The fish spear didn't work. He stood in the shallows and waited again and again. The small fish came closer and closer, and he lunged time after time, but he was always too slow. He tried throwing it, jabbing it, everything but flailing with it, and it didn't work. The fish were just too fast. He had been so sure, so absolutely certain that it would work the night before. Sitting by the fire, he had taken the willow and carefully peeled the bark until he had a straight staff about six feet long and just under an inch thick at the base, the thickest end. Then propping the hatchet in a crack in the rock wall, he had pulled the head of the spear against it, carving a thin piece off each time, until the thick end tapered down on a needle point. Still not satisfied, he could not imagine hitting one of the fish with a single point. He carefully used the hatchet to split the point up the middle for eight or ten inches and jammed a piece of wood up into the split to make a two-pronged spear with the points about two inches apart. It was crude, but it looked effective, and it seemed to have good balance when he stood outside the shelter and hefted the spear. He had worked on the fish spear until it had become more than just a tool. He spent hours and hours on it, and now it didn't work. He moved into the shallows and stood, and the fish came to him. Just as before, they swarmed around his legs, some of them almost six inches long. But no matter how he tried, they were too fast. At first, he tried throwing it at them, but he had no chance. As soon as he brought his arm back, well, before he threw, the movement frightened them. Next, he tried lunging at them, having the spear ready just above the water and thrusting with it. Finally, he actually put the spear in the water and waited until the fish were right in front of it, but still somehow he telegraphed his motion before he thrust, and they saw it and flashed away. He needed something to spring the spear forward, some way to make it faster than the fish, some motive force, a string that snapped, or a bow, a bow and arrow, a thin long arrow with the point in the water and the bow pulled back so that all he had to do was release the arrow. Yes, that was it. He had to invent the bow and arrow. He almost laughed as he moved out of the water and put his shoes on. The morning sun was getting hot, and he took his shirt off. Maybe it was how it really happened way back when. Some primitive man tried to fish with a spear, and it didn't work, so he invented the bow and arrow. Maybe it was always that way. Discoveries happened because they needed to happen. He had not eaten anything yet this morning, so he took a moment to dig up the eggs and eat one. Then he reburied them, banked the fire with a couple of thicker pieces of wood, and settled the hatchet on his belt and took the spear in his right hand and set off up the lake to find wood to make a bow. He went without a shirt, but something about the wood smell, smoke smell on him kept the insects from bothering him as he walked to the berry patch. The raspberries were starting to become overripe. Just in two days, he would have to pick as many as possible after he found the wood, but he did take a little time now to pick a few and eat them. They were full and sweet, and when he picked one, two others would fall off the limbs into the grass, and soon his hands and cheeks were covered with red berry juice, and he was full. That surprised him, being full. He hadn't thought he would ever be full again. He knew only the hunger, and here he was full. One turtle egg and a handful of berries, and he felt full. He looked down at his stomach and saw that it was still caved in. It did not bulge out as it would if he had two cheap, two hamburgers and a freezy slush. It must have shrunk. And there was still hunger there, but not like it was. It was not tearing at him. 
This was hunger that he knew would always be there, even when he had food. A hunger that made him look for things and see things. A hunger that made him hunt. He swung his eyes across the berries to make sure the bear wasn't there. And at his back, then he moved down the lake. The spear went out before him automatically, moving the brush away from his face as he walked. And when he came to the water's edge, he swung left. Not sure what he was looking for, not knowing what wood might be best for a bow. He'd never made a bow, never shot a bow in his life, but it seemed that it would be along the lake near the water. He saw some young birch. They were stringy, but they lacked snap somehow, as did the willows. Not enough whip back. Halfway up the lake, just as he started to step over the log, he was absolutely terrified by an explosion under his feet. Something like a feathered bomb blew up in a way, in a flurry of leaves and thunder. It frightened him so badly that he fell back and down, and then it was gone, leaving only an image in his mind. A bird. It had been about the size of a very small chicken, only with a fantail and stubby wings that slammed against its body and made loud noise. Noise there and gone. He got up and brushed himself off. The bird had been speckled, brown and gray, and it must not be very smart because Brian's foot had been nearly on it before it flew. Half a second more and he would have stepped on it and caught it, he thought, and eaten it. He might be able to catch one or even spear one. Maybe, he thought, maybe it would taste like chicken. Maybe he could catch one or spear one. He probably did taste like chicken, just like chicken when his mother baked it in the oven with garlic and salt and it turned golden brown and crackled. He shook his head to drive the picture out and moved down to the shore. There was a tree there with long branches that seemed straight, and when he pulled on one of them and let it go, it had an almost vicious snap to it. He picked one of the limbs that seemed right and began chopping where the limb joined the tree. The wood was hard and it didn't want and he didn't want to cause it to split, so he took his time and took small chips and concentrated so hard that at first he didn't hear it. A persistent whine, like the insects, almost more steady with an edge of a roar to it, was in his ears, and he chopped and cut and was thinking of a bow, how he would be able to make a bow, and how it would be when he slapped, shaped it with a hatchet, and it's still the sound did not cut through until the limb was nearly off the tree, and the whine was inside his head, and then he knew it. A plane! It was a motor, far off, but seeming to get louder. They were coming for him. He threw down the limb and his spear holding his hatchet. He started to run for camp. He had to get the fire up on the bluff and signal to them and get smoke up and fire up. He put all of his life into his legs. He jumped logs and moved through bush like a light ghost swiveling and running. His lungs filling and blowing and now the sound was louder coming in his direction. If not right at him, at least closer. He could see with all his mind now the picture, the way it would be. He would get the fire going and the plane would see the smoke. It would circle, circle once and then again and then waggle its wings. It would be a float plane and it would land on the water and come across the lake and the pilot would be amazed that he was alive here after all these days. And this is how he saw as he ran for camp in the fire and they would take him from here, and this night, this very night, he could sit with his father and eat and tell him all of these things. He could see it now. Oh, yes, all he had to do was run in the sun, his legs liquid springs. He got to camp, still hearing the whine of the engine and one stick of wood still with a good flame. 
He dove inside it, side and grabbed the wood and ran around the edge to the ridge, scrambled up like a cat and blew and nearly the flame feeding, growing when the sound moved away. It was abrupt, abrupt as if the plane had turned. He shielded the sun from his eyes and tried to see it. He tried to make the plane become real in his eyes, but the trees were so high and so thick, and now the sound was still fainter. He kneeled again to the flames and blew and added grass and chips and flames fed, and it grew, and in moments he had a bonfire as high as his head, but the sound was gone. Look back, he thought. Look back and see the smoke. Now, turn, please. Look back, he whispered, feeling all the pictures fade, seeing his father's face fade like the sound, like lost dreams, like an end to hope. Oh, turn now and come back. Look back and see the smoke and turn for me. But he kept, but it kept moving away until he could hear it even in his, he couldn't even hear it in his imagination, in his soul. It was gone. He stood on the bluff over the lake, his face cooking in the roaring bonfire, watching the clouds of ash and smoke going into the sky. And he thought, no, more than thought. He knew that he would not get out of this place. Not ever. Not now. Not ever. That had been a search plane. He was sure of it. That must have been them. They had come as far off as the, uh, to the side of the flight plan as they thought they would have to come, and then they turned back. They did not see his smoke. They did not hear the cry from his mind. They would not return. He would never leave now and never get out of here. He went down to his knees and left as tears started, cutting through the smoke and ash on his face, silently falling into the stone. Gone, he finally thought. It was all gone, all silly and gone. No bows, no spears, no fish, no berries. It was all silly anyway. It was all just a game. He could all he could do a day, but not forever. He could not make it if they did not come for him someday. He could not play the game without hope. He could not play the game without a dream. They had taken it all away from him now. They had turned away from him and there was nothing for him now. The plane was gone. His family gone. All of it gone. He would they would not come. He was alone and there was nothing for him.